Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Ben Chutner, and we're going to be speaking about misperceptions in private equity on the OI show. Thanks again for joining us for the OI show. Today, as I mentioned, we're joined by Dr. Ben Chutner. Ben, it is good to have you on the show. How are you doing today, my man? I'm doing great, Dave. It's good to see you. It's been a long time. It has. Ben and I served uh, for the Optometric Physicians of Washington back in like 2009, 2010, somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, we've seen each other, but haven't had very many long conversations. So it's good to hang out again. Absolutely. Yeah. So I had uh, asked Ben to come on and uh, Ben has uh, has ventured in the optometric profession in many different ways. You were selling your practice back in the OOTS days and uh, then you've gone to do some other things. Why don't you walk us through uh, a short version of your career and the things, the many things you've done in the short period of time? Yeah. So when we met, I was uh, in private practice. Uh, I had owned that practice uh, ultimately for about 10 years. I bought it in August of 2001, uh, not far from where you are in uh, Washington State, uh, and then ended up selling it in, um, in February of 2011. And I went on to uh, go internal with Baushalam. As you know, I was consulting quite a bit for BNL at the time. Uh, they asked me to come inside. I took over uh, management of learning and development for them. So I trained a lot of their reps and then uh, helped develop a lot of the, the content for new launches. Did that for a couple of years. And then, of course, there was the turmoil with the acquisition from uh, when they went from private to Warburg or from Warburg Pincus to Valiant. Uh, and then I was director of professional strategy, and that lasted for about a year and a half. Uh, recruited away, went to go work for uh, Luxottica under the LensCrafters banner as a senior eye care director. I oversaw eye care operations for about 180 locations at all of Canada, east to west. So I went all the way to Vancouver Island uh, uh, in, in the west and to Toronto in the east. I uh, also had what we called the Great Lakes, which kind of had uh, Michigan, Ohio, a little bit of Kentucky. Uh, then uh, was promoted from there to um, senior clinical director for Luxottica, overseeing optometric engagement for about 2,400 locations in North America. So I had all the brands, so Pearl, Sears, Target at the time, uh, LensCrafters, uh, and Macy's, uh, and did that for a little while. And then I got an opportunity, was uh, recruited away to be, uh, at that time, what was, uh, was VP of eye care for AEG Vision. Uh, at that time, actually, it was a QDI care group. Uh, and then uh, that was in July of 18. So it's been a little over four years. Uh, and then in September of 2020, after we got through COVID, uh, I was promoted to chief medical officer, which was a position that didn't exist. And they saw the need to elevate uh, optometry in the organization. So now I stand as the chief medical officer for uh, AEG Vision. Uh, I oversee all clinical operations for, I think we have 300 and it changes daily, as you can imagine, but 304 locations throughout 16 states. Uh, almost 600 doctors. So yeah, uh, wow. it's been a wild ride. It, it has been. And, you know, when you started optometry school your first year, you probably had no idea that you were going to go outside of the exam lane and not fit glass, fit contact lenses and glasses on people, right? Look at this yeah. career, right? I'm crazy. I mean, when I went to optometry school, I was a, you know, in and out of eye doctors since I was five. I ended up before LASIK in 97, I was a 950. And uh, so I just assumed that, you know, I'd graduate from optometry school and do that for, you know, private practice for 30 years and retire like my doctor had done. Uh, and then, you know, life just takes you in different directions. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I oftentimes think about how impactful we are in our profession. And some of us are destined to be impactful to the patient that we're sitting across from. Some of us are impactful in the way that we support uh, support doctors from an industry perspective. And then some of people are there to support, uh, support us in from an industry perspective to make our practices better. And you've kind of ventured through all of those different aspects and always with the patient in mind, how do we make people's lives better? And it's a, it's an incredible thing. And that's why we went to optometry school. We thought it was to flip dials, but it was really to make people and patients better, right? Exactly. And, and that was actually the hardest uh, decision. You wouldn't think it was. I mean, I was lecturing quite a bit uh, for Bausch. I think you and I followed each other quite a bit. You were with a different company, but, uh, and, uh, I slowly started to realize I wanted to do something different, but when they offered me the position, I think the hardest part was, uh, deciding to leave the lane. I remember talking to my wife about it and saying, you know, I've always identified at least in my adult life as an optometrist, or at least my adult professional life. And am I still an optometrist if I'm not in the lane, you know, seeing patient and, uh, a, a friend of mine finally looked at me and said, you're being an idiot, right? If it doesn't work out, you can't, you're always an optometrist. You can go back to the lane. And that was enough to make the switch. Um, but as I, as I went through my different roles, um, I did exactly that. I looked at uh, how my, what my impact is going to be. Right. And so, you know, I got to a place where my practice was, was doing quite nice. I think we saw, I don't know, three to maybe it was four to 5,000 patients a year. So, you know, I had direct impact on that. Um, when I got to Luxottica, we were, we were seeing 5 million patients a year. Hmm. The things that we did to help support the doctors there, um, you know, I had had a direct impact on patient care. So it was different. It wasn't me directly, but uh, by by being in that role and taking that position, that's you know, you start to think through, you know, what is my what is my legacy, if if you will. And um, you know, we had a lot of impact on a lot of patients. And now we're doing it a little bit differently. And I think we are changing the way optometry is viewed in the profession a little bit uh, with private equity where I'm at now. So, but it's the same concept, right? If how can I how can I create a positive influence on this machine that's moving forward uh, to protect optometry and our patients? Yeah. Let's hit on a couple of those. What are some of the most common misperceptions that we have about private equity? Because you're here to ruin me, right? Isn't that, isn't <laughs> yeah. that right? So t- t- tell me about some of the, the misperceptions that you hear and uh, let's make those falsehoods truthhoods yeah. or so th- make them th- reality. Yeah. I think, you know, I think unfortunately some of the worst things we hear uh, may be true in some organizations, right? So uh, we certainly have heard that this is just a corporate takeover optometry. We're going to destroy private practice and it's going to be this, you know, this big corporate entity in another Luxottica or another vision works. And I think, um, I think to, to some extent there is risk of that. And I, I think we certainly see that. And I, I'm not here to bash other organizations. You know, we're, we're certainly not the biggest private equity group out there. And, and there's some, some that are bigger that are very successful, but there are models out there where it's designed to completely reshape what the practice looks like and create kind of a national homogenous view of what these practices, uh, you know, look like to the public. Um, that's not all private equity. So while that misperception is based in some reality, uh, the truth is there are private equity groups uh, that take a very different approach uh, to how they um, acquire practices. So there are some out there that will will leave the practice completely untouched and in some cases won't even require changes to their systems. There's no common 
EHR platforms or point of sale systems. Some will have common platforms, but we'll keep the names intact. So uh, I can give you examples, obviously, from what we do. When we buy a practice, um, while we may eventually put them under a regional brand um, for marketing purposes, the practice name stays intact. And our goal is to keep the doctor there. We don't want our, our selling doctors to leave. Uh, they built the practice. Um, and so their legacy has to remain. And so what we used to talk about is how we we kind of keep their DNA intact. But really what we do is we take what's been best worked best by the practices we purchase. And then we add our our specialty, which is really back office stuff. So everything the patient sees should stay the same. And I think that's a common misperception. Um, unless somebody specifically tells a patient that one of our practices was purchased by us, um, they won't know. And that's intentional. And so there are groups out there that do that. So I think there are some that give uh, that, you know, that create this perception that all of private equity is out is out to destroy that private practice feel or that private practice mentality. The reality is what we're buying is private practices. At least that's our perception. And so in order to be successful, we have to maintain that private practice identity. Uh, and so we consider ourselves kind of a regional network of individual private practices. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a little bit different. Um, you know, and and we are not out to destroy private practices because as private practices can continue to flourish, eventually they're going to want to be acquired, and then new ones will take their place and continue to grow, and they'll be continue to be a pipeline to to consolidate. Yeah. So I think the other aspect of that is that, um, you know, as with anything, there are goods and bads that are out there, right? And 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 some that might fit a practice a little bit better than the other. And and for for people who may be considering private equity, it's kind of look at the options that are out there. Look at more than one choice. Uh, just because you know somebody who did one, you may not that might might not be the right fit for you. And look at the different options that are out there. Yeah. But also with that is. If you own your own private practice, there's a real good chance there's a reason you've owned it your entire career and things are going to be a little bit different. And hopefully the things that that a private equity can bring in to you would be helpful enough that it outweighs the fact that you're not 100% in control of everything anymore, right? So th there's there's obviously that doctors who are super, super, super controlling probably tend to not be happy with any private equity firm. And those that are kind of willing to like, hey, yeah, I want you to make my practice better are probably open to having some changes come in and, and make things even better. Yeah. So there's there's a, a wide array of doctors who sell and, um, you know, it's there's a, a wide age range, right? So we certainly have the doctors in their late 50s, early 60s. We have some as old as, you know, early 70s that this truly is an exit strategy. They're going to make enough money on the sale um, that they are not going to need to work. And they see it for what it is. I'm selling my practice. I'm giving someone else the reins. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to set myself up for retirement uh, while I can. Um, and, and for those doctors, I think it works extremely well because they know exactly what they're getting into. And, and quite honestly, probably no matter which private equity group they go with, it's going to work for them because that was their exit strategy. Um, mm -hmm. And on the complete opposite end, we actually have doctors who um, have sold because they had to. They got into some financial trouble, over leveraged. Uh, we tend to see a lot of um, a lot a lot of situations where doctors bought too much equipment and couldn't set you know couldn't have the patient or didn't have the patient you know, base cash flow for it. Wow, cash flow right. So it's you know that that we see that, and in those cases, they're 
you know, they're probably not going to be happy no matter what, because they didn't want to sell. Um, but if they, but a lot of times they come around and realize that this is a better way of running things and we can, we just, we're not leveraged the same way. And it gives them new opportunities to practice in a way they never would have. And then you have kind of the middle road where they probably weren't looking to sell. And then they got cold called by private equity and said, you know, you can make, you know, six times EBIT or whatever the number is. And, and they decide to sell solely for the money reasons. And they're probably the least happy. Um, and I, I'm not saying this necessarily from experience in our organization, just in general, what we see in, in the private equity space. So it is what you make it. If, if you go into this knowing full well that you are selling your practice, uh, and what I tell people is that we're going to run things differently than you would. You're going to look at things uh, and and say, I would never do that. And what I will tell you is our model works because you know you become one of 304 locations instead of one of one or one of three. So we can do things differently, and we may not we not may not chase every dollar because there are bigger dollars to get with something else. So as long as you you can understand that you know you are no longer going to be in charge and you're giving up the reins, I think it can be very successful. But to your point, it's the doctors that aren't willing to do that. You know, yeah. there's controlling doctors that are willing to give up control. And then there's controlling doctors that are just not willing to give up control. Yeah. Well, if I've learned one thing about optometry is we're, we're happy to complain about things if we don't like them, right? And vocalize it. <laughs> we so, are, yeah. Tell me some things that you're gonna do that that that's gonna be better about my practice. So if if private equity was to come in and you know take over a practice, what are you gonna do better as one of three hundred as opposed to what I'm doing? What are some examples of that, Ben? Yeah, so I think the I think our biggest success is really um, the work we do around um, CRM, the customer relationship management, and 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 how we manage communication to patients and automate that. I know there are systems out there that can do it. Um, you know, and, and I don't know that we're necessarily better than those systems uh, on an individual level, but um, and our recall systems and what we're finding now, and you know, I, I don't know where everyone is, but what we're hearing in the industry right now is exam numbers are down um, and p- doctors are, are not doing as well in getting their patients to come back. Now that's a broad statement. And obviously some doctors are doing very, very well. But what we've noticed is the practices that have been in our system for at least a year uh, have almost double digit comps and growth. And so um, I would say that that's probably the biggest, biggest improvement that we make that the doctor will see is, is increase in patient flow. And you can imagine we can advertise. So for example, in the state of um, let's take, uh, let's take, Arizona, right? So we can advertise under eye care specialties of Arizona. And underneath that could be 12 individual practices that don't have to advertise individually. So if you Google search eye exam of uh, eye care specialties of Arizona, all of those practices will come up. If you Google eye exam, uh, we're going to usually be close to the top. Uh, and then and then the individual practices will show up. So I think that, that the way we've kind of structured our marketing and our approach to patients uh, is is very beneficial. Things that doctors won't see, of course, is all the stuff on the back end, right? So not only do we increase top line revenue with increased exam growth, and then of course we have the capital to bring in new equipment. So if we want to bring in OCTs or OCT angiography, or if we want to bring in some sort of dry eye device like an IPL or Lipaflow, you know, we have the cash to do that pretty easily. Um, but also our margins are better, right? And I think a lot of doctors don't realize um, the back end. Um, 
improvements you can make to increase margins on things like contact lenses, for example, or even just frames and lenses. So uh, because of that, um, you know, we not only see top line growth, which the doctors will see, but we also see bottom line or EBITDA growth uh, that, that doctors just won't see. Mm-hmm. And that's because of buying power and so forth? Well, so there's also synergies and probably the thing we, you know, we don't like to talk about a lot is we're going to, unfortunately, there may be some people that will lose their job or be uh, transplanted to another role. So a lot of times, you know, practice will have their own biller or we have a whole billing department. So if we can't use that biller in a practice, um, we will try our best to find another role for that billing person. But sometimes, unfortunately, if they're not relocatable or we don't have a position that makes sense for them, you know, so that's a synergy that we gain. And that is probably, I mean, that's one of the things that I think, um, I didn't understand when I was first looking at private equity and trying to, you know, even before I was thinking of taking a role in this, in this place was, you know, really you, you buy a practice and, and, you know, again, let's say it's a vision source practice. I mean, they've got their costs of goods down pretty good, right? That's a great deal. Even IDOC and Perk and all these buying groups have done a fantastic job. So really where's the leverage? Well, there's leverage in other synergies, right? So there's leverage in in call centers. So we have centralized call centers. We have centralized billing. We have centralized recall. We have centralized marketing. We have centralized HR. All this stuff that a, a decent sized practice has to take on themselves, we've centralized it. And our goal, of course, is never to terminate uh, people. We don't like to see people lose their jobs. So we try to incorporate them into into our organization as best we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that 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 makes sense. Absolutely. And. It probably works better if there's multiple practices in a similar area, right? And I think that's kind of how uh, how you guys started, is you started within a couple of states and now you're expanding. Speak on that. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we started, when I joined the organization in March of 18, or excuse me, July of 18, uh, we were just over a year old um, and we were in six states Um but most of the practices we had purchased, in fact, all the practices we purchased were multi-unit practices. So we started with three businesses. I think um, our IT business had almost 20, maybe uh, 18 locations. Our international eye care center business had almost 20. I think Crown had somewhere like 20. So it was a lot of locations. That's a lot easier. They already have structures in place where they, they're used to dealing with a field team. The doctors uh, never had ownership, so they were always employees, and they were always used to kind of floating around between different offices. So that's a lot more simple. Plus, when you're looking to expand, um, you can build a field team. So as we expanded, uh, so we didn't do much expansion for a long time when I, after I first joined. Our first big expansion was in, in uh, Colorado, uh, and it was, I think, 14 or 15 locations. So when you do that, it's a new state for us. So you go in with 15 locations, and you can bring in a field team. So bring in a district manager right away who can help manage that because you can justify that spend because you have 14 locations. Same as uh, Nebraska was our next big one. And we already had some practices in Nebraska that were being covered by Missouri. And so now you can bring in a field team into Nebraska. So when we first enter a state, what we would like to do is do it with a larger group, five or six locations. And what we found is those are almost all gone. Uh, Most of those practices have been purchased. There's certainly some around that start for sale. So what we will do or what the brokers will do is they will, um, get together a group of practices and form a, a, I don't want to call it a group because they're not associated, but we buy them all at the same time. So we did that in say Tennessee where there was a founders group and there were four or five practices, which represented probably six or seven locations. And they all were sold together as a group. So we can bring in a field team and support them. It's very hard to go into 
you know, a state like uh, for us, it would be hard to go into say Washington where we don't have any field team or anyone near there. And then by one location, we'd, we'd really want to go in with five or six so we can place a field team in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you mentioned one other thing here, and that's the this misperception that you're going to dictate how I see patients. Touch on that specifically, like you buy equipment, right? I was a little bit, I've been a little concerned about that, right? I bought an IPL recently. And if, if I had, hadn't bought an IPL and I went into private equity, how, how would I go about saying, Hey, Hey, Ben, can I please have an IPL? Like asking like for a Christmas present or something. Right. Well, just like that. You'd ask for it just like that. And we'd make the decision. If you ask nicely. Uh, no, I think, um, so I think that's one thing that um, I will say um, every major private equity group uh, with the exception, I, with the exception of the two smaller of the major groups, which is VSP and and Team Vision, which is under Estor Luxottica, have optometrists in leadership positions. Uh, I may be the only optometrist that sits on the executive team of the private equity group, but if you look at even my eye doctor, there's two ODs uh, that are there. You look at eye care partners, there's an OD there. You look at Kepler, and obviously you've got you've got very well known ODs there. And um, my feeling has always been as long as optometrists are in those roles and they're in clinical roles to determine the direction of how the clinical strategy is going to be formulated and executed, uh, we're going to be fine. Now, obviously that can change, uh, but currently that's how it is. So for us, um, we've taken a very hands-off approach to patient care. So our philosophy is, hey, we trust our doctors. They've been doing this for a long time. The only time we get involved is if there's an adverse outcome. So if, if something happens um, where there's a patient who had an adverse outcome, then we need to get involved to understand, did we follow, you know, are we okay? What's our liability? What's, you know, we need to talk to the lawyer. We need to talk to the doctor and make sure, you know, if there was a mistake or something was dropped, you know, patient wasn't dilated and they should have been, then we, we, we you know, make sure that we have the right protocols in place that we recommend to our doctors on how to manage patients. But that's really it. Patient, you know, we trust that the doctors are going to make the right decisions to manage their patients until they don't. And obviously things happen and there's some, you know, every once in a while you'll run into a a concern and, you know, almost always it's just one of those things that happen in the course of seeing patients. Um, So we take a very hands-off approach. However, one of the advantages that I always speak of with private equity is our scale. So you know, um, I get asked a lot of time, a lot of the time from new grads, especially when they're they're looking to be hired and, and they ask if there's an OCT in the location. And when some of our locations honestly don't have an OCT in the exact location and they say, well, I can't, I can't practice without an OCT. And then, well, I graduated in 1997. I can assure you, you can practice without an OCT. That's not the question. <laughs> right. Now, should you practice without an OCT? The answer is probably no in most cases. In fact, almost all cases. The next question is, can you afford an OCT? And, and if you look at the pricing of OCT right now, and you know this, right? It's You're talking anywhere from 40 to 60,000 and you're talking $42 on average reimbursement. It's a tough it's, it's a tough one. We've had OCTs go down in practices we purchased that over the course of a year did less than 200 um, uh, scans. That's not justifiable. However, when I've got 15 practices in a in a location, I can certainly make sure there's an OCT available to everybody. And I can actually make sure there's an OCT and geography available to everybody. Now, it requires a different way of thinking. Um, and IPL is a great example. So we have an IPL in Kansas, as an example. We have several of them. Um, and uh, what we allow is doctors to, we've actually allowed doctors who want to get involved in dry eye management to say, hey, why don't you pick a day a month or even a day a week? Have everyone do it. Maybe it's a half day. So maybe it's Monday morning. That's your IPL day. You can you will leave your practice. You'll go to this other location. You will manage those patients with IPL. 
And then you'll go back for the half day. And as you build that up, if it's a full day on Monday, if it's two days a week, whatever it works out to be, that's beneficial to everyone. It's good patient care. It's good revenue flow. Uh, and we can provide those opportunities without having to put in 300 IPLs. And so I think one of the things that's lost when you build this kind of scale, again, it has to be, I think this has to be owned by optometrists, is we can provide opportunities for patient care that a lot of practices may not be able to do. Uh, and so, um, so to that end, if you were to ask me, I may not be able to put it right there in your practice, but could I find a practice in the greater South Tacoma area that would, where it would make sense? Uh, and then you'd have access to it. And that's what we would try to do. Yeah. So in this case, uh, you, you, you would still allow me to make uh, a high revenue for myself as a doctor without having to maybe buy a piece of equipment and, you're providing a large group of doctors the opportunity to see patients better. And so this is an example of how it's better for patients when you have that cost sharing that goes into it under the umbrella of private equity, which is really bringing all those practices together. Yeah. I mean, I I remember back in the day, this will date myself, when I first bought my practice, uh, my practice, and I think four others or five others shared a GDX. Uh, and it was a traveling GDX that we all had one day, you know, we had one week a month or maybe it was yeah. one every five weeks. And we just scheduled. Thing was made to travel. It was built <laughs> it was, to pick up and put it in your was. car. <laughs> yeah. It didn't, it didn't do well when you travel with it, but yeah, because eventually it went down. But, but the point was, is that none of us had enough glaucoma patients at the time to, or maybe, well, that's probably not true. We probably did, but we didn't realize it. And, and to justify a GDX purchase at the time, but between five of us, you know, you, you have, you know, quite a bit uh, more patients that can possibly benefit from a GDX. Now, of course, you know, again, OCTs can't travel. So I, I take kind of a hub and spoke approach. Um, and I look at these things now doctors can, for OCT as an example, I look at that as kind of like um, ordering labs, right? So when I go to get my physical, my doctor doesn't have a phlebotomist waiting for me in the, you know, downstairs, he, he will order labs for me and I'll go to uh, a lab that's within the network and my, and you know, they already know what I need because it's all part of the same EHR system. And then he reads the results. So what we try to do is we want to make sure the doctors realize um, the revenue for that. Cause a lot of our doctors are paid on a production model. So, um, you know, you can break it down into, uh, as you know, the diagnostic component, the technical component, interpretation component, splits it right down the middle. But, it, you know, so we can allow those doctors to refer out for an OCT, but we want the doctor that referred for the OCT to manage that patient. So we want the results to come back to that doctor so they can have the patient back and discuss the results or have the OCT done a week or two before their scheduled appointment. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that I I don't, think that optometrists realize as an opportunity is, um, is we can, we can take advantage of our scale and our capital. You know, I have a, I have a very large equipment budget, um, that, you know, we manage our repairs and replacements, but we can also buy purchases or buy uh, equipment, excuse me, um, that, uh, you know, again, when you spread the costs out over 10 locations and that patient base, it's a much easier return on investment than one practice that, you know, Hey, I think I really want to do IPL. Uh, makes complete sense. That's yeah. awesome. Well, I uh, I know we could talk for another hour or so, but I, uh, I, I, I hold us to a half hour here. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on things and uh, thanks for being part of the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. It's good talking to you and uh, I'm sure I'll see you around at uh, some of our meetings. Likewise. And thank you for joining us for this episode. Make sure to like and subscribe. Stay tuned for the next episode of the OI Show. Mm -hmm.